You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Onyi Afuaco. This is WFHB Local News for Monday, May 16th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with Professor Janine Bell, an expert in policing and hate crimes at Indiana University, about the racially motivated killings of 10 black residents in Buffalo on Saturday. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, our daily headlines. At the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on May 11th, Health Department Population Health and Outreach Manager Kathy Hewitt updated the commissioners on Monroe County's COVID-19 levels. So the increase in COVID cases is still continuing. Transmission is currently high. The good news is that the severe disease, hospitalizations, and death remain low. Our CDC community level may move from low this week to medium next week due to the elevated transmissions. The CDC recommendations for medium level include get vaccinated, test as needed, and talk to your provider about masks and other precautions that you can take. The biggest driver for the change in levels is hospitalization. And like I said, our current hospitalizations remain low. Per the CDC tracker, only 2% of our, of our staffed hospital beds have patients with confirmed COVID. And our COVID admissions, our new COVID admissions, is 1.8 per 100,000 people. So these um, community levels are updated every Thursday. So we have been getting some questions about isolation guidelines, so we wanted to provide some clarification. After testing positive for COVID-19, you start your isolation period the day after your positive test. If you are asymptomatic when you tested and you develop symptoms after your positive test, your isolation period restarts uh, the day after your symptoms started. Now you can end your isolation at the end of day five, and that's if your symptoms are improving and you've had no fever for the last 24 hours, but you must wear a mask through day 10. If your symptoms are not improving or if you take a rapid test and it's still coming up positive on day five, you must remain isolated through day 10. So we also wanted to take a minute to remind everybody that to remember to stay up to date, not just on COVID vaccinations, but all your vaccinations. So take a little time and check your vaccine records and then make a plan to get caught up on everything. Airport Director Carlos Lafferty informed the commissioners that the Monroe County Airport runway will be under construction this summer, which will lead to some runway closures. And uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty significant project. And what I wanted to bring to everyone's attention is that there are going to be some significant runway closures uh, at the Monroe County Airport this summer on our primary runway. Uh, this is our runway that serves a lot of the uh, the corporate traffic, the the what you 
would call the, the business jets and our main commercial users. So it's, it's going to be a, a, a source of frustration uh, for some of the people in our community. And we're working really hard on communicating uh, closure dates and, and bringing people into the loop when we have these construction projects and updates. And we're already experiencing some frustrations because we were slated to begin uh, our runway closure, uh, a three-week runway closure on May 16th. And uh, that's already been pushed back two separate times. Uh, the latest was this morning. Uh, and of course, it's because of labor and material shortages. So we're looking at closing our main runway for phase two of this project, May 30th. That could be up to a three week long closure for daytime service only. It will reopen at night. Um, and then the biggest impact to the community will be phase five of this project where the main runway will close for up to four solid weeks, uh, daytime and nighttime. Um, and that's, we worked really hard on, on planning this project and there's just, there's no way around these closures. Um, the FAA, we're going to have significant trenches um, and holes in the runway safety areas right off the edges of our, of our runways. The FAA, of course, you know, rightly so, will not allow us to have those surfaces open. So it's, uh, it's an unfortunate consequence of this system upgrade, but it's something that we have to do for the long-term health of the airport. Lafferty said that although the runway closures might be inconvenient, he is trying to find a way to make the best of the situation by collaborating with the Parks and Recreation Department. And I started talking with uh, the Parks and Rec Department yesterday is to, to take advantage of this runway closure. It's a it's a pretty big runway. It's it's over a mile long. It's 150 feet wide. And we're going to have five to seven weeks this summer where the runway will be completely closed. So we're considering and we're going to take this up to the FAA. but maybe having a, a community day where we open up the fence on the north side of the airport and escort people onto the runway. And maybe we do a fun run, um, maybe a, a car show or some sort of community activity where you know the residents of Monroe County uh, are able to come out and actually set foot on their own airport's runway and uh, kind of experience that. A lot of people never get that opportunity we have a lot of airport and aviation enthusiasts in the community who I think would really appreciate that. So um, just trying to do what we can for the community and make a little bit of lemonade with the situation that we have here. Monroe County Detective Alex Hahn asked the commissioners to approve funding to help identify a skeleton found back in 2004. Hahn said that he received a quote from a well-respected laboratory named Othram for $5,756. As stated, I'm requesting no more than $7,000 for genetic genealogy, gene, genealogy funding. Um, this is in reference to a case from 2004. Uh, skeletal remains of a unknown male were found in a remote area of Monroe County. Um, not only are these remains unidentified, um, but they also uh, show evidence of a homicide, uh, pretty clear evidence of a homicide. Um, I've become somewhat familiar with this genetic genealogy process, and uh, I believe that they can, I believe that doing this will, if nothing else, identify this uh, unidentified male. Um, I've tried, I mean, it's been 18 years. We've tried looking through missing persons reports, um, following up on, uh, with other agencies on their missing persons and whatnot, and 
none of those have checked out. So um, this is where I'm at right now. And this is really the last option, the last hope to identify this male and solve this, identify the male and then work the homicide case. Commissioner Julie Thomas shared her approval of the work Han is trying to do. Yeah, and this is a, an interesting way to pursue justice and also uh, to help um, his friends and family who are out there somewhere. So I appreciate the effort that you're taking. Really great. The commissioners approved the funding request unanimously. The next meeting will be held on May 18th. On May 10th at the Monroe County Council meeting, Council President Kate Wiltz took a moment to acknowledge the passing of County Property Administrator Susie Johnson. I'd also like to note um, that today's a sad day uh, for county government. We lost one of our longtime beloved employees, uh, Susie Johnson, who's our county property administrator, passed away this morning. And she truly was a joy to everyone who worked with her. And um, I only met her a couple of times and she was amazing. She was, and she was talented at what she did. And you could tell she really loved her job. And so she's a great loss to our community and her extended family. And we, um, I'd like to just take a moment um, and remember her and honor her for just silence for a few minutes. Monroe County Commissioner Penny Givens asked the counselors to approve funding for a pre-K school readiness program. Her and her council members, Peter Iverson and Cheryl Munson, have been working on. Councilor Munson and Councilor Iverson and I have been meeting with um, individuals associated with the Community Foundation in Bloomington and Monroe County about the preschool situation here and childcare here in Monroe County. Um, COVID has done its number on childcare issues. And so there is demand for getting kids ready for kindergarten. So what uh, Jennifer Meyer of the Community Foundation um, has done is she's reached out and she has been able to identify places where kids could have sort of an experience that would get them ready for kindergarten. I, I called an enhancement for kindergarten. And it would be a few weeks before they actually start kindergarten. One of them will be in Ellettsville. It's being run by the Boys and Girls Club out there. Um, and they are looking to do just, um, I don't know what to call it, just an, an incredible preschool experience for these kids. They'll be there um, multiple hours a day. They're gonna be teaching them social skills and, and uh, school readiness skills. They are looking to do this for 20 kids, and that's in addition to some of the kids that have been going to their, their preschool program out there already. So high demand. Um, then also MCCSC is offering a program for three weeks prior to the start of kindergarten again, like the exact three weeks beforehand. The kids will be there from nine till four, which will be the typical hours that they would be there if they're there for a full day. Um, and, so it's, it's just, again, a lot that we need to go over, but the MCCSC kids, what they need is at one of the locations and they're offering it at six out of the seven uh, elementary schools that have Title I students in them. And at one of the schools, they 
don't have quite the funding they need for supplies and for food for the kids. So I'm here today to ask that the council consider supplying $26,965.25 um, to the Boys and Girls Pro Club program out in Ellettsville and a total of $15,731.10 to the MCCSC program. Givens said that the kids in the area have been impacted by COVID-19 and that there is a high demand for the program. Smart Start director Jennifer Myers shared that there are long waiting lists for programs in Monroe County. Yes, we've been involved in a series of conversations, um, really just trying to paint the current landscape of early childhood within our community um, and diving into just, you know, the current needs that COVID has, um, those cards that COVID has dealt with families, uh, particularly the vulnerable children um, within our community. Those are families that are currently on the Head Start wait list, which is very long and was long very early, which is something that we have not been accustomed to dealing with within our community. Um, certainly um, um, an effect that COVID has had. So over 100 families are on the, the Head Start wait list. Um, similarly, we find that um, Compass um, Early Learning Center that's in Crestmont area that also serves a vulnerable population. Uh, families are over 100 on that wait list. And um, when we look at the wait list in our Title I Community School Corporation within Monroe County Schools, we see the very same over 100 families. Um, many of you know that uh, Richland Bean Blossom just opened a child care center and Within um, the few days of opening that center, they also have a wait list that's uh, quite numerous as well. Um, so while we're seeing that um, COVID has certainly impacted the ability to secure seats, um, especially among those that need it the most, we're also seeing that the current landscape of our providers along the line of the shortage of childcare workers um, is also coming into play as well as that um, our child care centers are not able to run full capacity currently um, due to the shortage of workers. Um, so ultimately, all this to say that when, um, when children enter kindergarten this fall, we can easily say that without a doubt, around 100 kids were for certain will enter without a formalized child care pre-K experience. Um, and so really addressing this as a community of how can we step in and, and start to fill this gap. Council member Cheryl Munson added that the program coming together so quickly was thanks to collaboration between organizations and that there are ideas for other programs to address the long-term program as well. Uh, one of the important points I think for the council to know is that we have discussed other uh, early childhood education and child care uh, components that are really needed in our community. And there is not a rush to get these going right away. So um, we are focusing on what we need to do um, most immediately. But coming to you all uh, will be proposals to uh, help fund actual facilities for uh, child care. And those, uh, what we're talking about now is uh, uh, a possibility at Ivy Tech, which would be truly amazing yes. for uh, the students there. And also uh, assistance for the NEST, which is 
filling a huge need in our community. Uh, another component uh, that I think will have long lasting effects is to continue the, the kindergarten jumpstart in MCCSC and RBB um, in, in future years, which we may be able to do with <coughs> endowment funding uh, to set up uh, a way to help staff these and provide supplies in future years. So th this is not the last you all will hear about <laughs> this. So tonight we are just focusing on the immediate uh, uh, program for MCCSC and RBB. Council member Marty Hawks said that she was in favor of the program. Hawks said that she has a family member who is a fifth grade teacher who has noticed that their students are not ready for fifth grade yet due to COVID-19 and online learning. Councilmember Trent Descartes commented that as a parent, he sees a need for this program and that he is in favor of a more long-term solution. This is a very non-traditional way that the county uh, can take some action to do some things to be exceedingly helpful for a really pivotal time in development of these particular students. Every parent in this county knows when you look for pre-K opportunities and or childcare, it is a walking pneumonia disaster. It is hard. It is competitive. It is gut-wrenching. And for people that love their children, and I think that's everyone that has them, my heavens, it's awful. And if we can do anything to mitigate efforts at that and turn this into a longer term thing, more power to us and more power to that. You know, in the back, in a vacuum, things will start to fill in. And this is a good opportunity to jump, to jump in that vacuum because that system is absolutely grueling. And I say that as a parent who went through that, that is grueling for those families. And the pandemic was 10 times grueling beyond that. So if it helps to verbalize that support for the people preparing and planning, count me in on that force. The council approved the program with American Rescue Plan Act funding unanimously. The next council meeting will be held on June 14th. In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with Professor Janine Bell, an expert in policing and hate crimes at Indiana University about the racially motivated killings of 10 black residents in Buffalo on Saturday. We now turn to that interview. Janine Bell, a nationally recognized scholar in the area of policing and hate crimes and professor at the IU Maurer School of Law, welcome to the WFHB Local News. Great to be talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. We're glad to have you on. And first off, I just wanted to ask you, just off the bat, what do you make of the horrific racially motivated killing of 10 black residents at a Buffalo grocery store on May the 14th. 
it's a tragedy, but I'm not surprised by it. I'm not surprised in part because I'm a hate crime scholar and I've watched incidents happen around the country in recent years. And this is sadly more of what's to come, I feel. Now, again, you mentioned you are, you know, a recognized scholar on a national scale on hate crimes and policing. Now, would you walk me through and perhaps the audience through what constitutes a hate crime? And in your expert opinion, you know, does this case fall under what is considered a a hate crime? To take your second question first, this is absolutely a hate crime. Hate crimes are crimes motivated by bias on the basis of race, religion, city, sexual orientation, the precise categories, and that means race, etc., are categories. They're not groups. That's something that's quite important. So this is a classic hate crime, and we know this in part because of the defendant's manifesto and live streaming of the event. You know, building off of that, the shooter has visited white supremacist websites prior to the incident. You mentioned the manifesto. Um, He was an adherent to the so-called great replacement theory. Would you touch on the rise of white supremacy today and how these hateful viewpoints are able to thrive in today's media landscape and in our culture? First of all, it's important to note that the great replacement theory is something that's not new. It's a long, you know, old white supremacist approach and view. So it's something that's not new. But the current environment with respect to social media, the space for these views and has absolutely allowed the views to proliferate and allowed adherence of these extreme views to find each other, right? So say, you know, with white supremacists in Bloomington, they might not know each other existed um, and they might have to go to other locations. The internet creates the space for them to find each other, for white supremacists to find each other. Now, um, many speculate that rulings like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial or other dog whistling to white supremacists by elected officials or media personalities have emboldened white supremacists to commit the atrocious acts that we've seen in recent days. Now, what are your thoughts on the precedent set by things like the Rittenhouse trial or other examples of you know turning the other way on white supremacist violence? I think that the result in the Rittenhouse trial and the not guilty verdict in that context and the dog whistle by politicians and by individuals as part of the media absolutely suggests to extremists that their beliefs are acceptable and that they should go out and continue to express views and do things in keeping with views that are really counter to American ideals of inclusivity, et cetera. Absolutely. And you you touched on the history 
here just a minute ago, and you're talking about um, how this is nothing new, right? So the United States has a long history of white supremacist violence. And, you know, what are the similarities or differences in the form of white supremacy we're seeing today versus white supremacist violence in the days of Emmett Till or other racially motivated killings that we've seen in the past? One big difference is that in the past, mob violence was a huge force, right? Lynchings, for instance, often involved entire communities watching present as black bodies lay swinging from ropes. Now, white supremacists, whose organizations may be sued and bankrupted by lawsuits, have adopted a lone wolf approach to violence such that they say, listen, this is our ideology, but you are to engage in this behavior on your own. You know, we we talk about this horrible tragedy, and, you know, I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, what can be done when it comes to policy or even on a societal level to prevent ultimately such horrifying acts like this to happen in the future? We don't know whether we can prevent them, but we might spend more time actually addressing them. So the vast majority of law enforcement agencies in the United States do not even investigate hate crime. So the most recent FBI report, more than 80% of law enforcement agencies suggested that not a single hate crime occurred in their jurisdiction. That suggests that they are doing nothing. And that's the way that most community police departments approach hate crime. We can't even talk about ending this sort of violence if we're not even doing very much at all to address it. So that's the start, I think. Now, I want to get back to the the Buffalo shooting in particular. Now, the Buffalo community continues to mourn in the aftermath of such hate and tragedy that has befallen that community. I was just curious, do you have any comment for the victims or the community of Buffalo after facing such a tragedy? I think that the community of Buffalo needs to come together and not just the African-American community, but the community as a whole needs to reach out to African-Americans in the community and say, listen, this is not something that we support. And moreover, we will redouble our efforts to address individuals in the community who express these sorts of views before they get to this particular extent. So that, I think, is the way that the community in Buffalo can best respond and recover to the extent they can from an incident like this. 
Absolutely. That was so, so well said. Now, Janine, these are all the questions I have prepared for you, but I want to give you the last word, and I know you're you're pushing up against the, the clock here, but I want to give you the last word. Is there anything else you would like to add, maybe something I missed in my line of questioning before we part ways? Yes, I, I want to add that it's important to note that anyone can be a victim of a hate crime. Hate crime statutes have categories listed, race, religion, sexual orientation. The precise categories vary by statute. And that means that anyone, for instance, who has a race can be victimized by hate crime. And I've seen victims of every background in the more than 25 years I've been studying this. That gives all of us an incentive to try to address this violence. Well, Janine Bell, a nationally recognized scholar in the area of policing and hate crimes and professor at the IU Maurer School of Law, thank you for your time and thank you for coming on to the WFHB Local News. Thank you so much for having me. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.